You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Finding Genius podcast. I have Robert Monroe. He's an author. He's an expert in combining human and machine intelligence. He's founded several AI companies and built some of the top teams in artificial intelligence. He's got a very diverse background, uh, which uh, you know we'll kind of go into and he'll note as we speak. But Robert, thanks for coming. Thanks, Richard. It's great to be here today. Um, why the fascination? I mean, a fascination with AI is very understandable. But uh, combining human intelligence and AI is a little bit of a different flavor. So how did you get to that um, realization that that would be a good way to go? And you know, tell me a little bit about, a little bit about that. Yeah, I got to the realization that uh, is a very important piece of AI is that the data side of things. Uh, really looking at a lot of deployed real world AI. Uh, so when we look at machine learning algorithms that, that have been used in, in industry today, Almost all of them are powered by thousands or sometimes millions of human annotated data examples. Uh, so for example, uh, autonomous vehicles know how to navigate down the street because thousands of uh, hours of driving has been annotated by people to say that this is a pedestrian, this is a car, this is the lane which is the middle of the street, this is a stop sign. Uh, and what this means is that uh, in many cases, the quality of the data is more important than the particular algorithm itself uh, when it comes to, to getting accurate and, and widely deployable um, machine learning. Uh, so that's what led me uh, to the, the fascination with uh, machine learning. And then uh, in terms of writing a book about it, uh, it was really plugging a gap. So if you look at most machine learning courses at universities or, or, or online or even most books which are out there, they'll only teach the algorithm side of things, uh, not the, the data side of things. So a lot of data scientists get a rude shock when they start trying to do real world AI for the first time. And they, they find out that they spend more time managing the data and getting the right human annotations um, than they do building the algorithms themselves. Did you write the book or did the machine write it? <laughs> we, we are a long way from, um, uh, from having a machine that uh, could write a book like this, uh, unfortunately. Well, when you talked about um, data being clean or useful or, or better, what does that mean? You know, what's, how can you get good data and how can you get data that's not good? And what makes the difference? I mean, th that's a great question because good data is, is incredibly, incredibly hard to get. And... Uh, unfortunately, it's, it's often looked at as a problem in, in machine learning. Um, so I think this bias of focusing on algorithms uh, still carries over to industry a little bit, and, and people want to outsource the problem of getting good data, um, or think it can be easily outsourced, so that's a trivial problem. And, and unfortunately, none of those are true. Uh, and I think that's a real shame, because 
the data side of things, like I said, it can increase the accuracy more than the algorithms themselves. And also it's just an inherently really exciting problem. Like this is how humans and machines are working together um, uh, to, uh, to create accurate models that, that can be deployed in the real world. Uh, and so in terms of the, the different aspects that you need to, uh, need to consider, uh, one is simply having the data. Uh, so for example, you know, if, if you're deploying an in-home device and you need good speech recognition, um, if you don't have thousands of hours of recording in all the languages you care about, uh, there's nothing that, that algorithms can do to overcome that. So you just need that, that raw data uh, to begin with. Um, and then the other piece is uh, you need quality annotations on that data. Uh, so if someone is transcribing uh, your th thousands of hours of audio in order to teach your home device, um, you know, which of those thousands of hours are the most important if you don't have a budget to transcribe all of them? Um, and what happens when, when multiple people disagree with each other? So you might have two people or three people transcribe um, the same uh, sentence um, and come up with slightly different um, uh, transcriptions. Uh, and it turns out that the, the math in, in order to figure out what should be the correct answer when, when humans disagree uh, is just as complicated as, as any of the, the math, which is uh, in the, the algorithms themselves. Um, so it really is uh, you know, a fairly complicated specialization of computer science wanted to you know have a really amazing translator and i have tons of data what makes the data more usable than not what what have you observed or have you figured out any techniques on how to look at data look at an algorithm match them and say all right let's go back to the data instead of the algorithm and see what we can do to either add more or change what we're putting in there you know maybe trim some etc Right. Yeah. So that um, that process you're describing, that looking at where algorithm is today and, and whether it's accurate or not and, and what's missing, uh, that's known as active learning um, within within machine learning. Uh, and that's uh, one of the, uh, the main parts of my book and, and one of the most exciting areas. And you can think of active learning as the process of trying to decide which is the, the best data for humans to review uh, to increase your model's accuracy. Um, and then you can divide that further into two kinds of problems. Um, one is uh, things that you, you know that you don't know. Uh, so this is uh, your machine learning model telling you that it has low confidence, for example, in a given translation. Uh, so uh, yeah, to continue that, that translation example, uh, you might see that the model itself is telling you that it has low confidence every time these certain kind of words uh, have been encountered. Uh, and so then that tells you that, okay, I, I need to go and get more examples of these kinds of words in the two languages that I care about, um, uh, get examples of the sentences with that word translated, and that's going to improve my model. Uh, and so that's known as uncertainty sampling. Uh, and there are uh, a lot of different algorithms for interpreting when your model is uncertain. Um, uh, and depending on your use case, one or more of those uh, might be the one. Uh, and so that's, that's a fairly straightforward way um, of deciding what's the, the best data uh, to, to annotate, looking at where your model is currently confused. Um, but then you have the, the much more difficult problem of when your model is getting something wrong, but it doesn't realize it. Uh, so it might be highly confident that it's getting a translation right, um, but it's not getting that correct. Um, uh, or you might be uh, working from a cold start, so you don't have any data translated between languages first, um, and you want to work out what is the, the best and most diverse set of data to begin with. Uh, and so the, the set of strategies to find out what your model doesn't know that it doesn't know, uh, that's known as diversity sampling. Um, and there's a, a real range of techniques um, uh, to try and uh, work out where you do have those gaps in knowledge. 
Um, and they're important for, especially when you're uh, adapting your machine learning models to, to new use cases, um, or when you want to ensure that you have real world diversity in your data. Uh, so your raw data might not be representative of the demographics that you care about. Uh, and so you want to employ techniques to, to make sure that as much as possible, uh, your annotated data can be representative of everyone that uh, is using your application. But walls are being run into, even with all the best knowledge, you know, combining your knowledge, and, you know, the best algorithm makers, you know, like, where are the, the stumbling blocks and why do you think they're there? And maybe in, Maybe look at translation or what area are you familiar with most that you could talk about? Yeah, I mean, I, I can talk about a number of different areas. So my, my, my PhD was in, in natural language processing uh, across a wide range of um, language use cases. I also ran product for AWS's first NLP and translation services. Uh, but I've done a lot of computer vision um, work as well. So I'm happy to, to talk about uh, all these different kinds of use cases. Uh, what's interesting is that they all face very similar problems. Um, so whether it's an autonomous vehicle deciding which data to annotate for its video cameras, um, or someone looking to translate between new languages, uh, these same principles of looking at where your model is uncertain and, and trying to find um, new examples of, uh, of data that you haven't seen before, they, they're all consistent across these, um, these different machine learning use cases. So um, most of the time when I've seen algorithm hit walls. Um, the the easiest way uh, to get more accuracy is with with better data. Uh, so we've seen some great advances in in translation with the, the move to uh, neural based translation systems in in the last few years, um, and it's been a particularly nice use case uh, because they've been getting much more accurate with less data. Um, it used to be the case, um, say five, maybe more like ten years ago now, that the translation algorithms um, got better with more data, even if that data was really messy. Uh, so you could automatically scrape websites, look for websites that have been translated into different languages, um, you know, programmatically align those different languages. And even though it was noisy, uh, that would still help your, your machine learning model. So that was a huge advantage for widely spoken languages like uh, like English and, and, and Spanish and, and Arabic and, and Mandarin Chinese. With the, um, the neuro, uh, neural approaches uh, to machine translation, uh, they're a lot more sensitive to bad data. Um, so uh, rather than looking at large volumes of data, you're better off having a small, uh, very carefully curated uh, data set. Uh, so this is a huge advantage to you know, the 99% of, of the world's languages, which, which don't have lots of resources out there. Uh, so this is really promising in, in terms of uh, being able to to think about good translation or good machine learning in general um, as a, a data problem. Language translation. What's how do you, how is it being handled by Google and some of the top firms? You know, because let's say there's I don't know. I'm going to just say there's 200 languages in the world. Um, specifically, what if you want to translate I don't know Vietnamese to uh, you know Nigerian? Do you need direct data for that, or can you get it? Can you make it work by having enough pairings of other languages and the algorithms being sophisticated enough that they can do that? They can make that jump by themselves. Yeah, th th yeah, this is a, yeah, that, that, that's a great question because there's been some really interesting innovations there. And so, um, yeah, just a point of clarification, there's about 7,000 languages in the world, not 200. Um, Enough, but uh, so there's a huge variety of, um, yeah, um, a huge variety of, of, of languages and, um, you know, I, I would say for almost every one of those 7,000, um, uh, uh, at least one of the speakers owns a cell phone. And so they have 
things like um, uh, Siri or S Voice or, or other um, language technologies on their phone. Um, they can use search engines. Uh, they need spam filtering. And for uh, the overwhelming majority of those languages, um, none of those technologies exist. Not translation, not spam filtering, not accurate search. Um, certainly not voice recognition. Um, uh, so it's um, a real gap there. Uh, so anyway, back to, yeah, so to your example, yeah, like, uh, you know, for, um, you know, every single pair of those 7,000 languages, um, you know, 99.9% .9 that there probably doesn't exist that, that parallel data. Um, and so if it was, you know, between Vietnamese and, and um, you know, a language spoken in Nigeria, like Hausa or Yoruba or Igbo or one of the other smaller languages there, um, you're almost certainly not going to find that parallel data. Uh, and so one of the, the cool things that we've seen recently, um, we're talking really just the last three or four years, in new um, neural approaches to, to machine translation is that you you can have one model that captures different languages at once. Um, so it used to be the case that you would have, you know, one model that, that is trained on English and German and translates just between those languages and another model that translates on English and French and translates just between those languages. And so if you needed to translate, for example, between French and, and German and you'd have any parallel data, you would have to uh, put it through one model first, uh, use English in what was called pivot language, and then translate it into the other language. And needless to say, those those errors would uh, propagate. Um, uh, and they tended to propagate in, in a way that wasn't random either. They tended to compound um, and, and make that kind of double translation really, um, really useless. Um, what's been really cool recently is, is what's known as zero-strut translation, where you can have one model, um, and all you're feeding this model is uh, a sentence and then uh, an extra tag, an extra like feature in that sentence, which tells you what language it is. Um, and then a, a second token that tells you what you're translating it to. And then, so in that same model, one piece of training data can say, hey, this sentence is English and it's been translated into German. Um, hey, this sentence is in Vietnamese and it's been translated into Hausa. And then uh, all of this is in one model and then you can simply tell it which two languages you want as the, the source and the, the, the destination. So even though you've never trained on the, the particular pair, say, of Vietnamese and Hausa, the, the fact that you've got a lot of uh, data in those two languages already means that the models do um, you know, a reasonably decent job um, of translating between those. Um, so that's just like, like really exciting. And, and there's a lot of evidence that these models are, are capturing really interesting abstract properties um, across all languages. Um, it's more than just kind of like, you know, surface similarities. Um, although I'll, um, uh, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll say that with, with, the, with the caveat that um, these are normally used as a starting point. Um, so I haven't yet seen this where those two languages um, are translated so accurately that you'd really deployed in many situations, except maybe to get the gist of it. Um, uh, that's typically a starting yeah, point. Is going to um, get and us then, there. And then you can start building it up. Sorry, what was that? What do you think is going to get us there? And then maybe even the next step, a language that we have no data, you know, maybe a, um, an old language that's been, that was never understood in the first place, you know, an ancient language that, no one's been able to decipher. And what, yeah, what will it take? I'd, and do you think I'd, at some I'd point we'll to, be able to do I'd that? I'd love to see that. So uh, it was an interesting paper out of MIT a couple of weeks ago, um, looking at uh, what was a lost language, but we, we did kind of reinterpreted about 50 years ago, uh, called Linear B. It, it turned out to be a completely unique script for, for ancient Greeks. Uh, and they were able to show that some of these modern machine learning techniques could be used uh, to, to partially decipher um, uh, what are now lost languages. So, so in that situation, or for thousands of languages today, where we don't have uh, have that data, uh, these kind of models mean that we have a, a much better starting point. 
Um, so it, it might have previously been the case that you needed hundreds of thousands or probably millions of examples of sentences in, in two different languages to translate between them. Uh, for a lot of these smaller languages now, you might be able to get to accurate models um, with maybe only 10,000. Uh, and so you know, at 10% of that cost, uh, you can create systems where people can start using this and, and maybe the translation is bad to begin with and needs to be mostly manual to begin with. But as they use it in, in a relatively short amount of time, it can very quickly adapt um, uh, to those new languages. Uh, and so that's super exciting for um, you know, any smaller language community um, that wants to start adapting tools into the language of their choice. I think, you know, like, I don't know who has the biggest data sets of language processing, I guess Amazon and Google and a few others. If they combined all their data sets and looked at them, I would think that they would see a structure and a rule base for language, no matter what language it is. And therefore, would be able to put that back into the algorithms. You know, the algorithms I would think would find unseen correlations, maybe, and maybe make this whole rule structure. And then we could move forward and translate anything to anything because we would understand that underlying again rule structure that's common to all languages. Yeah, and I um, I guess a really good observation that you can just take a, a very large amount of, of raw data and and start uh, to get meaningful patterns out of that. Um, so a little bit in translation, but certainly more so in, in other areas of, of natural language processing. Uh, this, is, this has become the, the most popular way um, of be, building machine learning. Um, and so this is what's known as uh, contextual models um, in this part of machine learning. Uh, and it, and it, it's not a really simple technique because obviously with this raw data, you, you don't have these human labels, um, but you can create tasks, which almost seems like a, a human label. And so a lot of these contextual models um, are built on, you know, all of Wikipedia and, and all um, uh, open books which are out there. And these machine learning models are giving very simple tasks like predicting the next word in a sentence. Uh, so, you know, if I was you know, saying something like, you know, the, the lamp is white, um, you would give this machine learning model the blank is white. And then it would uh, try to predict, um, you know, what, what word, what, what object falls in that, in that uh, blank space based on um, all the available context. Uh, and so having given these, uh, these machine learning models this relatively simple task of guessing words and sentences, and then a similar one of guessing whether two sentences follow each other, um, uh, we have these very large pre-trained models that, that really do encode you know, like millions and, and millions of, of sentences of, of data. And then they can be adapted to different use cases. Uh, so if you're looking in the, the NLP literature, you'll, you'll see these called contextual models or pre-trained models. Um, and they, uh, for weird historical reasons, go by, by names of puppets like Elmo and Bert. Um, and so they've been uh, super exciting in, in terms of, in a very short amount of time, um, these contextual models um, are state of the art in all kinds of language technology tasks, whether it's question answering, identifying the names of locations in text, identifying the sentiment of text. Um, really in the, just the last three or four years, um, these kind of models have uh, changed the way we're, we're looking at a, a lot of language processing. All right, so you know, I've beaten you up on language for a while here, but uh, what are some of the other areas that you see soon in the next four or five years, we're gonna have uh, big, big advancements in the AI component? Will it be autonomous driving or you know, where do you think the big breakthroughs are, are gonna come? What will they look like? I think so. I, I mean, I have, um, I've made some very public predictions um, about autonomous driving um, <laughs> uh, really uh, being launched in, in, say, the next uh, two to three years. Um, and so I, uh, I hope to be right there. Yeah, so I, I think um, computer vision examples are, 
um, are pretty excited and very nascent right now. Uh, for a lot of use cases, especially things like search engines, we've had AI out there for like 15 years uh, already. Uh, and so there's a lot of mature examples of AI applied to language um, you know, across many different industries that, that have been around for you know, some time. Um, uh, conversely, there simply haven't been that many computer vision uh, use cases out there. And it wasn't until um, recent advances in, in neural approaches and um, more than the algorithms themselves, just the ability of hardware to, to run at scale, um, that we had accurate computer vision models. Um, so now that in the last few years, we, we have accurate computer vision models that, that can do autonomous driving um, in ways that we wouldn't have trusted 10 years ago, um, that, that can do other things like surveillance or um, you know, uh, predictive maintenance, um, you know, identifying cracks in, in machinery, um, integration with robotics and then other kinds of reinforcement learning. Um, it means we're really just at the start of um, looking at a lot of potential interesting use cases for, uh, for computer vision. Um, I, I will say that this is also one of the, the most overhyped areas of artificial intelligence. Uh, I don't know any computer vision focused startup in Silicon Valley um, that could honestly lay claim to, to yet having discovered a successful and profitable use case. So I think we're, we're pretty early there at the moment. Was driving, you think, definitely a good possibility that it'll really advance to where it's super useful and, and you know, in use by many people. Um, any other areas? Well, how about an area that you think is really, really far off before we're going to get there? You know, is it general artificial intelligence or is it other areas that are even much more tame, but way, way off? Yeah, so general artificial intelligence is way off. And um but no one's really working on it. Um, uh, even people who say they are, it, it's more of a brand um, uh, to you know, get publicity and hype around, around their work um, than really thinking about AI. Uh, they're generally still working on, on scenarios which are really narrow in terms of their replication. Uh, so you know, a, a good example there um, back in language data um, is that for uh, spoken language, uh, for 99% of languages out there and even for most English accents, AI can't even tell you what the words are. Um, and it's, it's a little trickier than, than you intuit because uh, when you speak any language, you tend not to leave a gap between words um, like you do in most, but not all written languages. Uh, so it makes it a little bit complicated. Uh, human brain's really good at that, at determining the gap between words. Um, but AI is not so good at that for, you know, uh, I would say 99% of the world's conversations out there right now. And that's just trying to tell you what the words are in a sentence. Um, you know, we already have a reference dictionary. Um, let alone what the meanings are. Um, so we're, um, we're a long way off for, for any kind of autonomy. Uh, and so I would say that the, the biggest danger in AI, therefore, is you know, not a, autonomous um, AI that you know, could work outside its programming or, or you know, become malicious in some way. Uh, the biggest danger is, is that bias and representation. Um, it's that you know, most people can't yet take advantage of, of voice recognition. Uh, because we, we don't need to have that training data in their languages. Well, very good. Well, what's the best way for people to find out what's really going on in AI? I mean, would it be reading your books or articles you put out? Like, what, what's your recommendation on how Everyone people can go further? Just absolutely start with my book. That would be the <laughs> that would be the right place for it. Um, what's the yeah, name I mean, and where it's, is it? It's, it's a, Tell me. Oh, yeah. Me uh, so my book is uh, Human in the Loop Machine Learning. Um, and if you search human in the loop machine learning, that, that should be enough to, to bring up the, um, uh, the books uh, uh, published by many publications. Uh, we're publishing chapters as we go. So I've written 
most of the chapters right now, and I think about half of them are already available online uh, if you purchase the book. Um, and then the um, uh, the hard copy of the book will will become available once uh, that's complete early next year. Uh, so that's yeah. I mean, I certainly recommend my book because, like I said, it was the book um, I wish I had gotten uh, very early on in my career. Um, like many people in my, my early career, I looked just at the algorithm side of AI and uh, failed to realize for a long time that the data side was bigger and more interesting and more complex um, and a lot more problems to solve. Um, uh, you know, beyond that, um, uh, I think if you're interested in, in, in AI um, and you come from a technical background, um, <clears throat> a lot of the, uh, the big conferences out there um, have really uh, uh, high rejection rates. Uh, so that the quality of research is, is incredibly high out there. Most AI papers are written in a way that should be transparent if you come from a technical background. Um, if, if you don't come from a technical background, uh, it's going to be a little bit harder uh, uh, to see through the hype. Um, uh, certainly most of the news articles uh, that we see around AI uh, don't seem representative of our field to, to those who work in it. And um, yeah, unfortunately, I don't have a, a good solution for, for that. Good. Well, Robert, thank you for coming on. It's been an interesting call. It's been wonderful to chat today. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now and the companies that are using these technologies for the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you.